Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 10th, we're studying 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-18. through 18. St. Paul urges Timothy not to be ashamed of the true teaching concerning the good news about Jesus, nor of the suffering that accompanies it, as the apostle himself is currently experiencing that in prison. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Oh, thanks for having me again. As we get started this morning, Pastor Vandercook, let's talk a little bit of context. We're here near the very beginning of this epistle. What do we need to know about the epistle as a whole and the verses that precede today's text that will help us into the verses we've got for today? Uh, yeah, well, we've got the, you know, the, the book is addressed to uh, Timothy, that's why it bears that name, and uh, all of Paul's epistles bear the name of the recipient, and sometimes it's a congregation, in this case it's an individual, uh, Timothy, who has uh, been set over the, the church there at Ephesus. Uh, we meet him back in Acts 16. Um, he's got a, a Jewish mother, a believing mother, and a Greek father. Um, and uh, it's his mother and grandmother, as we learn in the, the opening verses of First Timothy, well, Second Timothy here as well, I'm sorry, Second Timothy here, where we learn that it's his, his grandmother and his mother, really, that are uh, responsible for um, uh, creating faith in him, or at least exposing him to the faith. Uh, obviously, it's the Word of God that creates faith, but, uh, uh, you know, the Lord works through our, our parents and, and those uh, that we come into contact with to bring us into the faith, and this is how Timothy uh, comes to believe. And uh, obviously, they have a very close relationship. Timothy's referred to as as his beloved child, uh, and um, uh, so Paul thinks very highly of him, and Timothy, likewise, it seems, uh, respects Paul greatly. Uh, so, you know, we get to verse 7 in particular from the, that opening portion of the book, and that really is what leads us into what we're talking about today, uh, where we have God, who's, where, where Paul writes to Timothy that God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power uh, and love and self-control. Uh, and because we have that spirit, therefore we are not to be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord. Would it be fair to say that this text now is going to be the main body of the letter? I mean, just thinking through the typical structure of Paul's epistles, we've had his greeting, we've had his thanksgiving, and then today we're really getting started to the meat of the letter, what Paul really is trying to communicate to Timothy. Oh, yeah, I think that's certainly fair. Uh, and and it's, it's kind of an uh, overarching theme for uh, Timothy and his ministry that, uh, you know, he is the... Um, He's the uh, he's he's the younger of the two, and he's been set over this church, and it's a letter of encouragement, certainly, uh, for Timothy to remain uh, steadfast in the faith, and and of course, while Timothy is the direct recipient of the of the letter, we kind of get to be the fly on the wall, I guess, if you will, kind of reading the letter 
uh, along with Timothy, and it gives encouragement uh, both to pastors today, but also to the church as a whole. How, how, and this has been a question we've come across a few times. It's probably worth looking at just again briefly. These are called the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and we'll be going through Titus after we finish 2 Timothy. So the application to you and I as pastors, to you and me as pastors, seems pretty clear. How do lay Christians take a look at books like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and make use of them? Well, um, lay Christians can see it as, first of all, uh, getting a little bit of insight into what are the responsibilities of their pastor. Um, you know, as far as what what is the pastor put into the congregation to do? Why, why has he been sent here uh, to be my pastor? What are his responsibilities? Uh, and so forth. And then also, you know, you get into sections of the pastoral epistles that talk about the qualifications for overseers. So as we're, as we're looking to our pastors, what, or if we're trying to encourage perhaps a, uh, you know, a young, uh, young boy in our congregation toward the uh, pastoral ministry, or even somebody who's who's already an adult, we might look at that description of well, what does a pastor look like, uh, and and see, hey, maybe this is somebody that we ought to encourage uh, into the pastoral ministry. In addition to that, you know, Paul just has some general instructions about how the um, how the church ought to run and what the what the work of the church ought to look like in general. So so certainly, um, uh, lay Christians have plenty to glean here as well. Well, and even in today's text, as we'll explore in a little bit, some of the language is going to show up in other places in the scriptures that are applied to all Christians, this matter of not being ashamed, while certainly is very applicable to pastors in the pastoral ministry, is something that is spoken to every Christian of not being ashamed of Christ or his words. That is true of every Christian in every time and every place. And so some of these are very true for the pastoral office and thinking through the way that the pastoral office and those who occupy it, those men are set as examples in the congregation. And yet it applies to to all Christians. And I think we're going to see some of that in today's text with some of this talk of not being ashamed. That it's while applying very specifically to the pastoral office and especially it's going to have that broader application to all Christians as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. That uh, while, well, pastors should not be ashamed of the uh, of the gospel. Uh, neither should uh, anyone else. And and you're you're right. That'll come out as we uh, go forward here. So, Second Timothy chapter one verses eight through eighteen. Our text for this morning. Paul writes, "Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling." Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 
May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. That's our text for today, 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 18. Pastor Vanderkirk, the first word is is therefore. Probably shouldn't skip over that too quickly. Why why do we need to pay attention when we see the word therefore show up in the scriptures, and particularly here? Well, anytime we see that word therefore, that means we need to look back to what came before that, because obviously the thing that came before that is going to have bearing on how we understand uh, what comes, uh, what follows. So, um, and in fact, this one, uh, you know, and, and this is fairly typical of, of Paul's epistles in general, this one's preceded by a, a clause that has the word for at the beginning of it, which means another word that kind of indicates we should back up. And then again, you know, so verse seven starts out with the word for, and then verse six starts out with the word, word for. So it all just kind of flows from one thing to the next. But specifically here, we have this uh, exhortation from Paul to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And the reason that we shouldn't be ashamed about that testimony is because, as it says back in uh, verse 7, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. And because we have that spirit of of power, love, and self-control, therefore, we should not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Uh, you know, the temptation is to be ashamed um, simply because, uh, you know, I, th- I think a good example of, of being ashamed of this would, would be to look back at, uh, uh, while the word uh, is not used there, you have the idea expressed in the fact that you have the um, uh, the disciples flee when Jesus is arrested, for example. Now, God be praised, they they eventually, um, all of them, save for Judas, of course, uh, all of them uh, uh, did did indeed repent and, and, and returned and were faithful apostles of our Lord. Uh, but you see in that, in the fact that they all fled, they didn't want to be associated with Jesus. Why? Because this is somebody that is uh, has been arrested, and uh, they don't want to be associated with that. There's there's a stigma that's attached to it, and so they're ashamed at that moment anyway. Uh, and so Paul is urging Timothy not to be ashamed in that way. Yeah. So he and I think that's a, a well well put that the example of the disciples that you have at the end of Monday Thursday where they flee is an example of being ashamed. And here in the text that we've got for today, you've got the. Uh, parallel contrast, do not be ashamed on the one hand, is opposed to, sh- or is equivalent to sharing in suffering for the gospel, that that those two things go together. So to be ashamed would be to flee from suffering in this case. And that's what Paul's urging Timothy, don't do that. Don't be ashamed. Don't flee from the suffering. Instead, share in that suffering. And that's that theme really is is pretty dominant throughout this text. We see this theme of not being ashamed come up in several places, both in Paul's urging to Timothy and then the example of Onesiphorus that'll come up toward the end of the text as to he was not ashamed of it. So, I mean, let's talk about that here in, in the beginning. Do not be ashamed, first, of the testimony about our Lord. This is a pretty big theme that we see from Jesus in the Gospels and Paul elsewhere in his epistles. Yeah, it is. Um, absolutely. You know, you get uh, in, in the Gospels, of course, 
you have Jesus, uh, you know, Mark 8 says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory with the holy angels. So, uh, you know, if you're going to be ashamed of me, then then I will be ashamed of you. In other words, uh, I, if you don't want anything to do with me, Jesus says, then I will not want anything to do with you on the last day. And that's quite a terrifying thing, obviously, uh, that if we are uh, if if the Lord is ashamed of us, that that puts us outside of salvation, quite frankly, and that's that's not a uh, that's not a pleasant thought. Uh, and the same thing in Luke nine is expressed: for whoever is ashamed, Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So. Uh, you have uh, Jesus himself talking about the fact that, hey, if you're going to be ashamed of me, then you'll also be um, uh, ashamed of, uh, then I'll be ashamed of you in the last day. In context, in particular, in Mark, of that that verse from Mark, Mark 8, 38, um, Jesus, this comes right after Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, and he's rebuked by Peter, uh, where Peter says, you know, may this never be, Lord. And, uh, and, and so, you know, that that idea of the suffering savior is is one that um the, the that our human flesh has to battle with has to do battle with because uh it doesn't make sense uh it it just doesn't that that uh that by this defeat this seeming defeat of Christ on the cross this is how salvation is wrought and and so we we flee from that message because it it goes against the wisdom of the world uh, and we're ashamed of it, um, but Jesus urges us not to be ashamed, and actually goes so far as to say, if we are ashamed of that particular doctrine of the cross, uh, then then we we stand outside of salvation. Even, I mean, those are very scary words of Jesus in Mark eight and Luke nine, where he talks about if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. I mean, that's a a strong word of judgment. It's very very law oriented. We Lutherans don't like the law, I thought, Pastor Vandercook. What do we do with verses like that? <laughs> my tongue's well, in my cheek a little bit there. You could probably tell. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand, yeah. Well, we, we first of all recognize the fact that it's there. We can't just uh, explain it away and, and pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, but, uh, you know, the the fact is that, uh, that yeah, that law is there. Uh, but, the, you know, when we we talk about the cross, the cross is absolutely law for Jesus as, as he is condemned by it, but it is the sweetest gospel for us because uh, he, in his, uh, in his accepting that condemnation of the law on our behalf, of, of suffering the wrath of God on our behalf, um, uh, we, are, we are instead set free by that. Uh, you know, the, the sin is paid for by Christ, uh, and so, you know, that is the uh, that that is gospel for us, uh, and so it's a message we shouldn't be ashamed of because, quite frankly, that's our that's our salvation uh, right there. Hmm. What about this matter of not only being ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner? How did those two things go together? The shame that we would be tempted to have toward the Word of the Lord, and the shame that we would be tempted toward. Our, I guess, our our pastor or our fellow Christians. How do those two things go together? Paul connects them here. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, Jesus, Jesus says, "He who hears you hears me." Uh, you know, expressing the fact that whenever uh, those who are called 
to serve in the office of the ministry. You know, first of all, his apostles, but then by extension, pastors even today. Um, whenever they speak, they're not speaking their own words, but rather they're speaking the words of Christ. They're standing in the place of Christ in the stead, and by his command, they, uh, you know, they absolve sinners and so forth. And in in the case of Paul here, the reason why one might be ashamed of him is because, well, he is not, a, you know, by extension, Paul was not ashamed of the testimony of the cross. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He was not ashamed of the message of the cross. But because of the association he made with that, he finds himself in prison now. And now, by extension, people may not be want to be connected with Paul because, well, that guy's in jail. Uh, and we don't want to be associated with somebody who's being uh, held prisoner for this. So while while today we can put on the brave face, perhaps, and say, yeah, we want to be associated with Paul. We want to be associated with Jesus. You know, at the same time, um, whenever we're faced with that that question of, are you going to be, are you going to associate yourself with the guy who's on trial for, um, you know, even, even if it's a ridiculous thing, it, you know, are you going to associate yourself with the guy that's in jail or, or are you not? And so the temptation is always to say, no, no, I don't, I don't want to suffer that with him. Uh, and so for, for Timothy, uh, the temptation was certainly there to say, golly, if, if Paul's in jail, uh, what could happen to me if I decide that I want to preach the same mess that she's preaching? I don't want to go to jail. I think we see this in part still today, in, and and I'm not sure if I'm going to use this term right. I think it, I think I am. What's called cancel culture today, and and the way that if if an unpopular opinion is expressed publicly on social media, that there is often this effort made by some to cancel that person to, and I, I hope I'm using the term right, I think I am, that that if you express an unpopular opinion, and, and we would say that much of what Christianity teaches according to the truth of God's word is very unpopular today, truth concerning marriage, truth concerning life, that these unpopular opinions, it might be easy for us as Christians to try to distance ourselves from it. And sometimes this happens. You'll see a Christian speak the truth. They'll get put down for that by those in popular media, if I can speak very broadly. And and then you'll see this effort by some Christians that say, well, we're not that kind of Christian. And I wonder if this text has something to say to that sort of reaction. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic application. Uh, yeah, the and, you know, and and you'll even encounter entire church bodies that, uh, well, not entire church bodies, but entire congregations, perhaps within a church body, that will kind of downplay their less popular doctrines and teachings. You know, because they'll say, well, you know. Um, yeah, that's what our church teaches, but we're not going to talk about that much because they realize the fact that that's going to make them, uh, that's going to cause them suffering, quite frankly. Uh, you know, whether it's it's going to cost them suffering in, the, in terms of being unpopular or whether it's going to cost them suffering as in actually um, losing, uh, uh, losing some type of uh, financial assistance or something like that. In the case of like, a, I guess that might be in the case of more like a business or something like that, but uh, whenever there's there's money attached to it. But, uh, but for the church as well, that you have that risk of sometimes, uh, sometimes being faithful uh, has its price, um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, Paul is, 
is telling Timothy it's worth it uh, to to be that. And we'll come across that more as we get to the later verses here as well. Sure. And, and to be faithful together, this isn't Paul just standing on an island, but he's saying, look, Timothy, you're, you're here with me on this island. We are together in this suffering, share in this suffering. And yeah. I mean, I suppose all that, the sharing in the suffering that we go through as Christians together is all tied back to the suffering that Jesus did for us on the cross. All those things go together. He carried the cross for our sakes. And now as we follow him, we carry a cross, but we're doing that together. And if we're ashamed of Christ, then we're going to be ashamed of, of each other as well. All those things just tie hand in hand. We can't, I guess we, we can't, can't say, well, I'm not ashamed of Christ, but then, be ashamed of our brothers and sisters who are following him faithfully. Those those two things just don't go together. Yeah, that's right. So as, as we continue then, Pastor Vendor, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. And again, I appreciate your emphasis because it is it can be easy to get sidetracked, but the emphasis there on, on the shame is ultimately the shame that we would have because we follow a crucified Savior, the one who looks like he is defeated. That's the one we call Lord. There's there's the ultimate shame. Paul says, don't be ashamed of that, but instead share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And, and here's where, I mean, Paul launches into this as I was reading. It, it's just this long sentence. And, and you talk about connecting things. Therefore, I mean, one thing after another is connected to us. So Paul's urging Timothy, share in the suffering for the gospel, by the power of God, he's going to tell us who this God is, the God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Let's try to take that phrase first. Yeah, um, really what you have there is, uh, is, is Paul is keeping justification, sanctification in their proper order. Uh, and this is important for obviously anybody, but but for the preacher of God's word here in particular is what we're, we're looking at with the way that uh, Timothy does it. It's that God doesn't give us a holy calling because of our works. It's not because, uh, you know, oh, I picked you, Timothy, because you're, uh, you know, you're, you're better than everybody else or, uh, you know, any pastor. You can't just take them and say, well, because of all the works that you've done, now I'm going to give you this, uh, this very special task. But rather, uh, God gives us a holy calling because of what Christ has done in his work of redemption. So it's not tied to, it's not like it's a reward to have the holy calling, but rather the holy calling comes because uh, Christ has manifested himself and made himself known, and and he needs his uh, ministers of the gospel to carry that word uh, to those who they've been called to to serve. This takes us back to the beginning of First Timothy. In that epistle at the very beginning, Paul lays out for Timothy and for all of us his his past, which was not, I mean, by any means, there were no works that Paul had done prior to his call to be an apostle that would have earned him the calling of apostle. If anything, it was the exact opposite. And Paul lays that out very clearly as to who he was. He was a, a persecutor. He was a murderer of Christians. 
And yet, yeah, he was the one ahead. that. Sorry to sorry to interrupt. I was going to say he was the one we're talking here about. You know, the fact that he finds himself in jail and he's telling Timothy to be willing to suffer. He used to be the one that actually inflicted the suffering. <laughs> so right. it's you know obviously the the roles have reversed here. Right, and and now he's he's willing to receive that because he knows of the suffering that Christ went through for him. And and again, all of this. I mean, just as as you said, Paul here holds together in proper order, justification and sanctification for himself, for Timothy, for all pastors, and for all Christians, ultimately. Now, again, it takes us back to that very first trustworthy saying that you get in the pastoral epistles back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And and here, Paul, Paul lays that out again for Timothy with different words. But it, I mean, Paul, Paul is Oh man, I'm trying to tie all this together because it's it's just one long sentence. Paul, <laughs> <It> is. <laughs> Paul is suffering for the gospel by the power of God. All of all of this is coming to Paul as a gift. I mean, the suffering comes as a gift, which is he's suffering because of the salvation that has come as a gift, because of the calling that has come as a gift, and it, and it's a holy calling not because of what Paul has done, not because of what Timothy has done, but because of what God is doing. Because of, because of his own purpose and grace. So, so keep. I mean, we we're, that really I think covers the justification aspect of it. That this is all God's gift to sinners in Christ, even to Paul, the foremost of sinners. How does that then flow into the matter of sanctification for Paul and for Timothy? Well, as far as uh, yeah, the sanctification is going to come from what they then uh, do with it, you know, as far as uh, their actual proclamation of, of this, uh, this manifestation of Christ, you know, the, the proclamation of that, which is what makes one holy. That's what the Word of God does. It, it makes things holy. So uh, because of that, now they are to take this suffering of Christ uh, that has uh, both been for their forgiveness, but also for the forgiveness of the whole world, now proclaim that message uh, to the people. So the sanctification then is that uh, they are doing the work of an apostle that is uh, proclaiming God's word to the nations. Well, it is the is the suffering that we've been talking about, that's part of the sanctification as well, isn't it? Well, I think it is, yeah. Well, certainly, because you have this, uh, this suffering which, um, uh, which highlights uh, the... Um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It, it, it highlights the fact that uh, without Christ, we have nothing. Uh, but then that suffering also produces character uh, and also uh, builds our faith because it shows us that without Christ, we are um, uh, we are insufficient. But we have this this one thing that we can hold on to, this good deposit that he's given us, as we'll get to that phrase later. And we will pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUL. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 10th. We're studying 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-18. through 18. We've got Pastor David Vandercook with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we were working our way through this long sentence of Paul at the beginning of the text, and we're right in the middle of verse 9. So God has saved us. He's called us, not because of what we've done, but because of his grace. And now that grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began— and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So you've got this grace. Paul talks about it in two ways. On the one hand, it's something that God gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. On the other hand, it's grace that has been shown. It's been manifested through Christ's appearing. Take us into each of those in turn. The grace of God that he gave before the ages began in Christ. What's Paul saying there? Well, I think that the the idea of uh, election and uh, predestination can sometimes make uh, Lutherans cringe a little bit, just because we see that and we're like, oh, well, we're not Calvinists, you know. Well, it, the the election toward to salvation or you know predestined to be saved, uh, that is certainly a biblical teaching, and it's expressed here as well that we have the fact that uh, you know God has chosen us since before the foundation of the world, to be his children. And what great comfort there is in that doctrine, the fact that, um, you know, we, we hear so much in, in kind of popular Christianity, this idea of uh, making decisions for Christ and, and choosing him and things like that. But the problem, of course, with that is that there's always this this element of doubt in there that did was my, was my decision sincere? Did I really... Uh, choose God, uh, you know, was, and especially whenever we look at our own lives and we say, golly, you know, I, I sure don't live like a person who is a, who is a Christian all the time. So maybe my, maybe my decision for Christ was not sincere, but, but here's where this doctrine of, of salvation and, and election, uh, that, that is given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began is so comforting because Jesus chose us. Uh, he, he made us Part, he, he made us his his uh, his bride, the church. He made the the church his bride. Even before the foundation of the world, we have this idea that God has has selected us to be his children. And then, of course, you know, obviously, it speaks to the fact that Christ is eternal here as well. Because if if you have this um, uh, this uh, this um, this holy calling or, or this uh, salvation, this grace that's given us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, the fact that Christ is eternal. He doesn't just come onto the scene there, uh, you know, whenever the uh, the incarnation begins, whenever he's uh, uh, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So, I mean, within that, there's a defense of the, the article in the Nicene Creed that he is 
begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. I, did I did I say that correctly? I have a hard time picking. Yeah, it sounds up right the, to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know those are in the in the Nicene Creed. I'm sure if I got them in the right order, but but that defense of of Christ's existence from all eternity, that he is true God of the same substance of the Father, is inherent in this teaching concerning election, which is not the election that just happened in our country, but God's choice, his choosing of us in Christ. And the fact that he did that before the ages began, or before the foundation of the world is another way that Paul puts it, as you said, I mean, that really rules out our works, because before God even started his work of creation. He chose us before we even had a chance to do any works. He chose us in Christ. So you, you've got that on the one hand, which, and I think that's important because it, you, you really, you really hold on to the idea of grace alone in that if God made this choice before the ages began to save us, then it's grace alone. There's no place for my works. And what about this second part, though? This grace also is modified in verse 10. It now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. And then we'll, we'll pause there. Why is that part just as important? Well, that's because the, the grace, the, the way in which God brings about that salvation is now apparent. Uh, you know, it's that, that grace was always there, and God's plan for that salvation was always there. It's not like he he switched plans in the middle whenever the uh, you know whenever his people Israel rebelled or something like that. He's had this consistent plan all along, but now it's been revealed in Christ Jesus. Um, and this speaks to the fact that you know how are I get into these conversations in Bible class sometimes that we talk about why are the people in the Old Testament saved? You know the people that came before Christ came on the, you know, before Christ came into the flesh and before Christ walked the earth and before he's crucified, well, they're saved the same way that everybody else was. Salvation comes through uh, Christ and his death and resurrection. Uh, you have the faith of the, the saints of the Old Testament, and their faith is in the coming Messiah. Our faith is in the Messiah who has come and still is the crucified and risen Lord. So ultimately, it's the same faith, the same Jesus. It's just that it's not revealed for all eyes to see until Christ takes on human flesh and manifests himself. You know, of course, we, we use that type of terminology a lot in the season of Epiphany. We talk about Christ um, revealing himself to the world, uh, and, and that happens there. But that doesn't mean he wasn't already there. It's just that the actual means by which God is going to bring about this salvation are here. You know, the same thing, Yeah, the other thing I was thinking about, too, is that you have— uh, um, Mary, you know, whenever whenever the uh, uh, the angel comes to her and, and tells her that she's going to be uh, the mother of the mother of God, you know, the mother of Jesus, uh, she says, um, "How can this be?" And and you know, there, there's it's kind of a loaded question, you know, how is this going to happen? But you know, it's not that Mary didn't uh, Mary didn't know the scriptures at all, uh, but rather it's that how how is this going to happen? You know, um, you know, exactly. How is this going to go down? I know that I know that uh, I know that it's, you know, I know the gist of it, uh, Lord, but but I don't know exactly how it's going to go down. And in Jesus, we actually see how it's going down, how it happens. Uh, and so we have that 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 manifestation, that appearance that comes to the whole world, that this is how salvation is won. Right. And that manifestation of what had been preached all along. Mary, Mary yeah. would have been 
she would have known the scriptures. She would have believed the scriptures that the Savior, the Christ, was coming. And now when Jesus comes, he makes it plain. You get to see what's been preached all along. How does he How does he say it? The, he talks to his, his disciples and says, blessed are your eyes who, because they see what others long to see, and your ears because they hear what others long to hear. That's not an exact quote. But he, I mean, that's that's the idea there, is that all along through the Old Testament, this reality was preached, that Christ would come, die and rise and ascend for sinners. And then when Christ comes, you see it. And now you and I, we we hear it. We we come to faith through the hearing of that preaching of what has happened, and it is the same faith. There's, I mean, we just celebrated All Saints Day not that long ago. The saints in the Old Testament, the saints in the New Testament, it's the same faith in what God has done in Christ Jesus, what He has made manifest, and that's all by His grace. It's His choice to save us apart from our works by His grace. I mean. You've got All Saints Day, you've got Reformation, all coming together on this one text. Yeah, absolutely. So Paul Paul continues then, let's see. He made this manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, which I think, is that is that in some of the funeral propers or the graveside propers? Is that why I know yeah, that every- phrase? It is. It is. It's. It's there. Um, it's. Uh, I don't remember the exact spot where it's at, but yeah, it's there at the committal. Yeah, yeah it's that's at the committal it. Service. That's yep. it. So we. We. I mean, that exact language that Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This. This theme of resurrection, which Paul has already brought up in the very first verse of this epistle, he talked about the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Here he is preaching that again, and then he gets in verse eleven, for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. There's the the end of Paul's long sentence here. Take us in that last part, particularly as Paul talks about his appointing to be preacher, apostle, teacher. Yeah, uh, you know, the whole point of his being a preacher and an apostle is to do exactly what is to proclaim that message of Christ and him crucified right there. Christ is the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Now I'm supposed to preach that message. Uh, and I've been sent to preach that message, to teach that message. And then he comes back to the matter of suffering, which is what he he told Timothy at the very beginning. Don't be ashamed. Share in suffering. And now Paul sets himself as an example of that suffering in verse there, oh no, 12. Verse 12. Takes us into verse 12 and the example of Paul's suffering that he gives to Timothy. Yeah, well, he, he notes, you know, of course, we, we see Paul's suffering, and there's 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 a laundry list of things that happened to Paul. I don't recall it, uh, the, precisely where that's at in the scriptures, but you know he was shipwrecked this many times, and he's uh, received the forty lashings minus one. I don't know if I have those numbers right now off the top of my head, but you know you have the fact that he's been beaten, he's been near death, uh, he's been in prison multiple times. So we have all this suffering, and the reason why he suffers is because. Um, it's, well, quite frankly, it's worth suffering for. It's the truth. Uh, the alternative is to deny uh, Christ and his salvation, and Paul's not going to do that. So what's the, I mean, what are the grounds then that Paul gives for his suffering? He says two things. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Give it, take us into those grounds of what Paul says for the reason for his not being ashamed. 
Yeah, well, again, he knows who he believes, and of course, that's that's Christ, and he knows the suffering of Christ. That's the message that he preaches. So, uh, for that reason, you know, there's the suffering thing should not be foreign at all. Uh, Christ himself talked many times, spoke many times to his disciples about how uh, they would they would be, they would suffer. They'd be put out of synagogues. Uh, people that killed them would think they were offering service to God. So, uh, Paul recognizes the fact that what Jesus says is true. Uh, and that that's that's part of um, part of what being his apostle is, um, and then also he's convinced that he's able to guard that uh, until the day what has been entrusted to me. Uh, in other words, you know, God's word cannot be broken, um, and it's trustworthy. It's true. Um, nothing nothing that people can do to me can take that away. Uh, and so it's he he has confidence in the promises of God's word there. And so that same confidence he desires to dwell in Timothy as pastor, and he comes back now in verses 13 and 14, urging Timothy, commanding Timothy to be faithful. And, and we're going to, this language that we get in verses 13 and 14 of these of these verses is very familiar to what we heard Paul talk about in 1 Timothy. Again, he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Sound words, healthy words. We've seen that phrase in Paul before. Here he says, follow the pattern. What's What's the picture Paul's giving us here? You know, every... Every sermon that was preached, like in the book of Acts, for example, especially, you see like Stephen's sermon or Peter's sermon on Pentecost or um, any of the other sermons that you read there in the book of Acts, all of them are almost the exact same sermon. Uh, It is not complicated one bit. All it is is it is telling you who Jesus is, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus suffered and died and that uh, he rose again on the third day. So it's all about the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's a very simple message. These are the sound words. This is the pattern that has been established for uh, the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Paul exhorts Timothy to do the same. You know, I think the temptation sometimes is for, um, maybe not, I'm sure this temptation has always been there in the church, that we're always wanting to hear something exciting or see something exciting or, or that we're obsessed kind of with being winsome to the point of, uh, to a fault. Not that it's bad to be winsome, but just that that's how we judge whether what we hear is good or not is, does it excite us? Uh, is it, is it framed in such a way that, that we think it's really interesting rather than looking at it and seeing, no, that is the sound word of God. This is the gospel. Uh, And so, you know, I think he's cautioning Timothy there against um, being caught up in the idea of trying to be uh, too winsome. And that can be a point of discouragement sometimes for preachers as well, that if they're not winsome, if they can't choose uh, really interesting words and can't turn a phrase like uh, like their brother pastors can or something like that, it might make them feel inferior uh, when, in fact, all preaching— simply needs to be faithful. This is the this is the exhortation from Paul here is that not necessarily do you need to be interesting or exciting, but you need to be faithful. Yeah, follow the pattern. That that's not about being winsome. It's not about being exciting. And again, not that that's inherently wrong to be 
exciting. We, I mean, we probably should be excited about the gospel. This should bring us great joy. And, and that probably should show sometimes. And, and it's not wrong to be winsome or, or to try to use language that will connect with someone, if I can say it that way. The, the sermon that, that I preach in Central Texas and the examples that I use are likely to be different than examples that you will use in, is that Central Arkansas, I suppose? Yeah, Central okay. Arkansas, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, those those are going to be different, but ultimately it's going to be the same pattern. And, and if you and I preach almost the exact same sermon, or if we preach the exact same sermon that follows this sound pattern, you know, we, we, we were just re- recalling the, the committal service and the language that we both speak at gravesides. That is just as true for someone in central Texas as it is for someone in central Arkansas, as it is for any Christian in any part of the world. That sound pattern is what matters. And, and might that come across as, as boring? Well, I suppose my sinful flesh might think that, but but how could I ever think that that what God has given me is boring? Far far be it from me to to think that. I mean, Jesus has. You brought up the sermons in the Book of Acts. I, I always think of uh, Luke twenty four, where Jesus is is talking to his apostles before his ascension, and he's he's telling them he's opening his mind their minds to understand the scriptures, and he basically gives them the sermon outline for any sermon ever that that Jesus has been crucified and raised. Why? For repentance and forgiveness. I mean, that that's your sermon right there every week. And, and we kind of, I mean, I think we kind of joke about this as Lutherans sometimes, like law, gospel, amen. Well, okay. I mean, yeah, sure. There's, there's a, I mean, there's a caricature there and, and we need to be careful that we don't become formulaic, but, but the pattern of sound words is a real thing and we shouldn't depart from what has been given. I'm not trying to be on a soapbox, but I mean, pattern follow it use it yeah it's god's gift yeah that's right that's right and and the temptation you're right is is that 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 can come be, that can become boring to us uh and it can become uh and and certainly there is i mean obviously you don't want to fall off the horse on either side on this thing right. uh there are times when we can we can perhaps get into as you said being kind of formulaic but uh but certainly the opposite of that is is equally harmful and that is that we we Let's start to think that's boring, uh, and and you're right. That's the that's our flesh that does that. You know, that's one of the greatest tricks the devil plays on us is to get us to think that God's word is boring. Uh, and you know, um, God's word isn't boring. Um, it, it's 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 life giving. So. Right. Now, above all else, God's word is not boring. And 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 the more often we we hear that and proclaim that and realize that, I mean, just what a what a joy it is. To be able to to hear his word, the creator of all things gives me his word. That that is a I mean, if there's ever anything that's not boring, that's it. Now, now Paul in verse 14, he repeats again a familiar phrase from First Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is this good deposit? Yeah, well, that's that's our salvation that's been laid up for us. You know, uh, you think about uh, think about like a bank, and uh, of course, you know, we put our savings into a bank, we make it that deposit of putting that money into the bank. Um, well, in this case, we didn't make the deposit. Uh, you know, Jesus made the deposit for us. He put that salvation into the bank for us, and now uh, Paul is telling Timothy to guard that deposit. That is, you know, use the sound words. Stick to preaching the Word of God. Guard that deposit uh, so that it may be stored up both for you and for those to whom you preach. 
Now, as, as Paul continues, then he, he brings up some historical information that would have been pertinent to Timothy at the moment. He says, he says, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, Timothy was in Ephesus. We certainly know that in 1 Timothy, he was the pastor appointed there in Ephesus. Paul left him behind there to, to guard that congregation. He's probably still there at this time. Paul says all who are in Asia turned away from, from him, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, and then he singles out this Onesiphorus. Do we know anything about these these historical people, these events that Paul brings up here? Yeah, there's some speculation in some of the some of the writings of the the, the early church fathers, but none of it is is really compelling or seems to be terribly reliable. But but what you do have is you have examples of those who are ashamed of Paul and his chains, and you have those who are not. And in particular, he says uh, all those in Asia. Now, it's probably he's probably not talking about like when we think of Asia today, we see a huge continent. In fact, it's the largest continent in the world. Uh, but I, I don't think that uh, I think we can pretty definitively say that Paul is not saying that everybody in Asia is ashamed of him, uh, but rather. You know, here, whenever we're talking about Asia, we're talking primarily about like modern day Turkey, uh, and that there are a number of people there in particular that became ashamed of Paul and turned their backs on him. Uh, for that matter, you know, Anesiphorus there, uh, he actually is from Asia as well. So uh, the fact that Onesiphorus is, is one of the uh, those that he, you know, because he, he rendered service at Ephesus, which is there in Asia that Paul's speaking of. So because of Onesiphorus being there, it's obvious that at least some people weren't ashamed of him anyway. Right. Onesiphorus uh, is, is singled out particularly. It, why did he have a hard time finding Paul in Rome? Any idea there as to the historical situation? Yeah, you know, I got to be honest, I did not, uh, I did not, uh, look into that terribly much, but, you know, it's a lot easier to find people today than it would have been then. <laughs> Rome was, Rome was a, Rome was a big city as far, as far as the ancient world goes, a uh, bustling city. And if, um, uh, you know, and Paul, who was likely in prison at the time, whenever Onesiphorus is trying to find him as well, uh, that would make it doubly hard. <laughs> sure. And, and some, some would point to this, as one of the evidences as to perhaps when exactly this was written, likely in the imprisonment that ended with Paul's martyrdom. And the the reason he was hard to find, perhaps, is because he was being held in a more tightly guarded prison than, than say, the, I mean, you think back to the end of the book of Acts, and Paul's under house arrest there in Rome. And, and it seems that he's got a little more freedom to come and go, a little more freedom to receive visitors than what's indicated here. So that perhaps this imprisonment that he's undergoing when he's writing Second Timothy is a bit harsher than, than what you see at the, book of, at the end of the book of Acts. Again, some of that is, is a bit, you know, we're trying to piece together the evidence that's there in the scriptures and it's hard to do exactly, but that, that might be part of it. Now, you know, one of the things that we do get very clearly, I think, here in these words even when we don't know exactly a, a ton about Phygelus, Hermogenes, and Onesiphorus, Paul talks about, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. And then again in verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Take us into that word mercy particularly. Yeah, on the one hand, we might look at that and say, well, really, this seems like the first, the people that need mercy are probably the first two. Uh, mm. um, 
How do you say the first one's name? I don't know. I mean, every time I read it, I can't get it right. Fidulous Um, is how uh, I'm saying it. Fidulous and and Hermogenes, yeah. So you got Fidulous and Hermogenes, and you would think on the first at first glance you're like, oh, those are the people that need mercy because look, they're going to suffer judgment because they were ashamed of Paul and then in turn ashamed of Christ Jesus. Um, you know, so I mean, we don't know what their fate is here, but but actually, Paul is saying, no, may the Lord grant mercy to Onesiphorus, and this is probably a helpful reminder that the only way that that we are saved is by God's mercy. You know, at the beginning of, of every divine service, we pray the, the Kyrie, Lord, have mercy on us. Or we may, we may throw the words upon us, depending on the setting of the divine service. Lord, have mercy upon us. Um, and the only way that we can ever hope to be in the presence of God is by his mercy. So even though Onesiphorus has, made, has done a good thing by not being ashamed of Paul, and that's good. At the same time, the fact is that Onesiphorus is still a sinner. And so Paul still prays that God would have mercy on him. That is, that God would save him. Uh, and so, in a sense, I think it's it's very much the same as the way that we pray the Lord's Prayer. You know, we go through each of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, and every one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer is praying for things that God has already promised to us. God has already promised us His mercy in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean we don't still pray for it. We don't stop praying for God's mercy just because he promised to give it to us. But rather, we continue to pray for it because we don't want to take for granted God's gifts and also because God wants us to pray to him. That's why he gives us his name. With just about a minute left, Pastor Vandercook, help us to to summarize this text, point us to Christ Jesus through these words from 2 Timothy. Yeah, the Lord does not want us to be ashamed of him. Uh, There's no reason for us to be ashamed of him. Yeah, when we look at the way that we live in the world and the fact that the world hated Christ, and because it it hated Christ uh, and continues to hate Christ in some ways, and especially hates the message of the cross, the temptation is for us to be ashamed because we don't want to be connected with it. Uh, And here Paul warns us against that shame. There's no reason for us to be ashamed. We shouldn't be ashamed because it's in Christ's death that he was at his strongest, the thing that should have caused, uh, the thing that was intended to cause shame upon him is the thing that's our greatest glory. And so, you know, let us not be ashamed of Christ, but rather let us uh, suffer with him and recognize the fact that as, as the martyrs did before us, that this suffering that comes is a gift from God. Uh, it is uh, an affirmation of the fact that we have been chosen to be part of Christ's body, the church, and uh, and so let us rejoice in the fact that we have been called to suffer with Jesus. Pastor David Vandercook is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas, helping us this morning with 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. Well, thanks for having me. Do not be ashamed, Paul says. Christ Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother, to be our savior. He has died, he has risen, he has ascended. He will come again for you and for me and for all who trust in him. There is no need to be ashamed, but we gladly suffer here with him, knowing that he will raise us to life eternal on the last day. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.